Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. This is the podcast where we get to say, you're a lizard, Harry. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are going to be talking about the class for our third homebrew showcase character, our Yon T. We discussed the Yon T race in last week's episode and today we are going to be going over the class. We have decided on the wizard for the Yanti, so we're going to talk about the wizard class as it is published, and which of the many wizard schools we're going to end up going with on this particular character. So, again, much like the rogue, the wizard, particularly with D&D, is one of the iconic classes. It's been very well thought out. It's been very well fleshed out. There is tomes and libraries of lore and offshoots and deviations we really could spend months just talking about wizard class on its own so we are going to try to streamline this episode a bit so we're not as meandering as much as we were last week we're going to discuss the base class and then we're going to touch on the three i think we had three options that we were considering we're going to discuss them a little bit the merits and flaws of each why we want to pick them And then we're going to pick which one of the three we're going to use, and we'll go into detail on that one. So uh, I guess we'll start at the top? Yeah, uh, let's go ahead and start off at the top. Do we want to talk a little bit of lore about the wizard first, just to get an understanding of what we're going into here? Because we did discuss the fighter and the rogue. We did discuss them a little bit. The role at the table and the role as the... uh... What they do in the party? Yeah. Okay, that's fair. So your wizard is generally known as your glass cannon, so you can do a lot of damage, but you're very breakable. You're generally not your frontline fighter. You're generally the brains of the group, more often than not, though how aware of your surroundings you are is always kind of up to question in roleplay. Generally for your wizards, your dumb stats are going to be your strength, your constitution, and your wisdom. I would personally say that con gets a higher billing than dex, at least in my wizards. In your wizards, yes. I'm thinking kind of like the traditional like story. Dragonlance, one of my absolute favorite wizards, was from the Dragonlance novels, Rastalin. If you tried to drop a sheet, he'd probably have a constitution of like eight or nine, where he was physically very sickly, but he had so much intellect that that was the balance. Yeah, he had a twin brother who was a fighter who was average on intelligence, but he had huge charisma and constraint. But that whole, you know, physically frail and weak wizard versus a very healthy and hale adventurer. Yeah, but if you're going in strictly looking at the mechanics aspect, you're going to want a higher con score because you're going to have to make concentration checks from time to time. Oh, you absolutely want the higher con score, but it's that how people normally would be introduced or see a wizard in story or tale. And there are so many saving throws that are constitution-based. I was looking at a chart. I'm going to have to see if I can find it again. It listed out the number of saving throws for each attribute among spells and among monster abilities in the published materials. And constitution saves accounted for almost half of all of the saving throws in all of the spells and monster abilities. Yeah, how many of those were poison? Probably a good chunk of them. Yeah, now see, and again, numbers-wise, poison does get a little bit of the short stick in 5e, and Ian likes to bag on poison, and that's fine. I tend to play a caster character, so for me, poison's kind of a big thing, because constitution's not normally where I put my extra points in it, so if you ignore constitution your wizard, then that poison spell will definitely put you in the dirt. 
Well, at least in this particular case, the Yanti has resistance to poison. So you're going to have a little bit of a buffer there. I will say putting party members in the dirt is not always a bad thing if you have a necromancer in the party. <laughs> there is that. But the poisoned um, status effect, it gives you disadvantage on attack rolls and ability checks. And that is going to be really, really bad for a wizard because you are relying on your spells actually landing. Right. Your constitution checks come up a lot. Any kind of poisoning, a lot of physical effects in general. Come up to your constitution say of how well can you hold up to disease? How well can you take a punch, really? How quickly are you physically dazed? That wizard, he's generally going to be the brains of the group, not your most physically imposing. He's not going to physically show up and darken many doors. He's kind of maybe one of the smaller, weaker characters of your group. He's not terribly agile. His abilities come in elsewhere. I don't see why he can't darken doorways. I mean, he has access to the darkness spell. Not doing it physically, but he's got the magic. So in 4th edition, you had four roles that your different classes filled. There was a leader role, a defender, a striker, and a controller. And you think about the wizard, and you think that the wizard would be a striker, just dishing out massive amounts of damage. But in 4th edition, the wizard was classified as a controller. So they had lots of status effect spells, and they were able to, you know, lock down enemies or maneuver them around in such a way that your other characters could get a better hit on them or to keep them away from your squishier characters or what have you. And I think that particular aspect has carried over pretty substantially into 5th edition. A lot of the spells in the wizard's repertoire really carry through that controller aspect that maneuvering the pieces on the battlefield if you will yeah that makes a lot of sense a lot has to do with how you're going to play your wizard we talked about you know in one of our earlier episodes joking about a party full of bards or a party full of paladins it would be really squishy but a party full of wizards would be very interesting if they all came from different schools because each of the schools gives i mean it completely changes how you play the table you know everybody knows evocation i'm gonna cast fireball and blow everything up and that's how most people know wizards they wouldn't even necessarily all be very squishy because you have the abjuration wizard which gets extra ac you have the school of war magic which they get to say neener neener every time someone throws a spell at them the blade singer is also one that i see a lot as being just a crazy overpowered uber wizard and that's for a wizard that you want to be able to get up into other people's faces Right. Depending on what school you want, the wizard can play so many different roles. As much as I felt the fighter was kind of, uh, you don't want to roll a character, so here's a fighter and a fighter is a fighter is a fighter. The wizard is your exact opposite. And that's why we're going to try to focus on a couple schools instead of talking about absolutely everything, because we really could be here forever. Yeah, we could easily spend seven, eight hours just sitting here talking about wizards. And not not the company, um, but the class we can sit here for seven eight hours and talk about wizards and not even come close to reaching the bottom of the topic so if you really want to think about your character if you really want again a lot of that adaptability if you don't want to be the big barbarian swinging a club or an extra sword the wizard's really your character and this is the character i personally lean more towards all right so let's go ahead and dive into the class features for the wizard They're D6 hit die. They were a D4 in earlier editions, and I'm glad that they bumped them up to a D6. D4 just squishes way too easy. Oh, they were so squishy. 
I mean, it wasn't uncommon to have in third edition a fifth level wizard with twenty hit points. It was just disgusting. You tripped on a stool. Oh, your character's dead. Yeah, you tripped on a stool and you bumped your head on the corner of the table, and now you're dying of brain hemorrhage. Let's see that great big brain help you now. <laughs> your proficiencies, you don't have any armor proficiency. You get nothing. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. Weapons, you get daggers, darts, slings, quarterstaffs, and light crossbows. So all just very simple, lightweight weapons. Nothing that actually packs much of a punch at all. Not at all. If you're a kid in the street, you know how to use all these things. And you put your mind into more refined things than these base tools that the lesser mortals would use. You have convinced the world and physics around you to do your bidding. You don't need tools. That's what magic's for. Magic is your tool. Going through saving throws or intelligence and wisdom. A little odd that wisdom's one of your saving throws. As we said, wisdom tends to be a traditional dump stat. But it fits. It fits that wizards have wisdom as a proficient saving throw because the whole thing about the magic that a wizard uses, yes, it is all about the knowledge of how to find the spell and how to perform the spell properly, but it is also greatly rooted in mental discipline. Yes, and that's the point I was going to bring up, is that it does fit in a way, again, the wisdom's going to have that self-awareness versus situational or surrounding physical awareness. So I kind of see that, but like I said, it does sound a little funny, but again, that wizard is going to be very aware of his or her inner world and their selves versus maybe not so much what's going on around them. Skill proficiencies, you get to start with two from Arcana, History, Insight, Investigation, Medicine, and Religion. That is all of the intelligence-based skills plus insight. Imagine that. So again... Nothing unexpected here. So, I mean, these all make sense. I do want to note that perception is not on this list. So this plays into that whole absent-minded professor stereotype that you've got going on, where they're not very perceptive of their surroundings when they're not actively looking for something. Maybe I'm projecting a whole, a whole hell of a lot on this one, but I always run over and Anytime I'm doing anything that's not actively grabbing my attention, I'm going over a book I've read, I'm re-listening to a lecture I've heard, I'm reliving a conversation, I'm planning the next podcast. So I tend to live, quote, quote, head in the clouds or within my own head. So that totally makes sense. I trip over stuff all the time. I walk into things. My situational awareness is nil. So I totally get this. This makes perfect sense to me. I can't think of any skills that are missing from this list that I would advocate heavily to putting on this list. No, I can't really think of anything I would really want to add either. I would almost want to give the wizard a bonus language as part of the class. So um, many of the backgrounds give that to them already, though. Right, they do, but... I would almost, as part of the class, want to give them... I mean, Draconic would be the one that I would pick because in the root D&D worlds, Draconic is the language used in magic. Um, Not always. Often, but not always. And it would really depend on what they studied and where they studied and how they studied. That is true. They could be studying a translation into another language, but most of your spells... As it goes in baseline D&D, most of your spells are written in Draconic. 
Right. Again, different language you also have. And with that religion skill, you have a lot from Abyssal or Celestial Infernal. Sylvian was also a language for more of your... Uh... Uh, Sylvan would be a nature, I think. More than religion. I guess, yeah. Because that would be like Dryad and such. Correct. That was another branch where a lot of magic did come from. So magics weren't all dragons. A good chunk of them. Maybe a little bit more than half. The breakdown becomes... Is it natural magic, divine magic, or arcane magic? Yes. Arcane magic is draconic. Divine magic is celestial or abyssal or infernal. And your natural magic would be your sylvan or primordial. So so I think if we were going to give them an extra language, they'd be able to pick from from one of those four. It just seems to me that them being an arcane caster, having them proficient, at least with reading and writing, draconic. Potentially. That's a flavor thing. I wouldn't go ahead and rubber stamp that one. I would want to know more about the character personally. I'll concede that one. Moving on, starting into some of our first level abilities, you start off with cantrips. We haven't touched on this yet because this is our first caster. Cantrips are low level spells that don't consume a spell slot when you cast them. So you can cast a cantrip every six seconds all day every day and never run out. This is a very nice change in 5e. Second edition, third edition, you did have cantrip spell slots. You generally like were the bottom of the barrel you're scraping. So the fact that you get a small little spell that you can machine gun and throw out as many times as you like is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful change. Yeah, because I remember playing a wizard in 3.5 starting at level 1. And you walk in and you have... I think you had one first level spell slot and two cantrip spell slots at first level. It may be four and two, but you know, you start in and I get two combats in and I'm out of spell slots and we're still going through this dungeon. And so I spend the next three encounters pelting things with my light crossbow because that's literally the only thing I could do. Right. And you're like, can we take a break guys? Can we take a break? (laughs) So the cantrips, the way they've changed that, I really like this change in 5th edition. And some of the cantrips have a little bit of bite to them, which is nice too. So they're not all like casting light. Firebolt's nice. Poison Spray's decent. Chill Touch is one that I really like. It's fairly situational, but it does come in handy. Toll the Dead is a really good one if you have enemies that have a low wisdom save. Because once they start taking damage, it becomes a d12 hit die if they fail their save. The nice thing about cantrips is that their damage scales, and it scales based on character level, not on your class level. You could have a 16th level barbarian, one level wizard, and you could cast a 4d10 firebolt. That sounds so horribly wrong. That, that sounds so metal. So you mean. wrong. That is so metal. That is what we call an abomination. No, because what you do is you throw a firebolt in their face and then you rage as a bonus action. The person who plays the cleric does not <laughs> notice the abomination on the table. What is wrong with this? I'm just having fun. And again, at the end of the day, the game should be fun. Now, moving on to spell casting, Wizards, along with clerics and druids, are classes which prepare their spells as opposed to being innate spellcasters like the warlock and the sorcerer and the bard those classes know a certain small number of spells and can use any of the spells that they know using their spell slots whereas clerics druids and wizards have an expansive list 
and they pick a few from that list to prepare for the day and they have to pick which of their spells they're going to use that day and hope that they pick the right ones. I like this feature a lot. It's a lot of planning ahead. It's a lot on the DM, particularly in the chaos, to make sure that your players are, in fact, preparing their spells and they're preparing the proper number of spells. And likewise for the character, too. If you're a newer character, you have to... Don't forget to prepare your spells for the day. Most of the time, what you're going to do is you're going to set up a standard spell list, and you're going to say, unless I designate otherwise, these are the spells that I'm going to be preparing every single day. And that's generally a good idea, particularly for a newer player. But this is one of the trickier parts about a wizard. The house rule that I use for this is for your classes that prepare spells. If you find yourself needing a spell, like really needing a spell that you didn't prepare, that you have access to, you can take a bonus action to gain access for one casting of that spell. That's me saying... Okay, this is you. You're searching through your spell book to find the page with that one spell on it. And then you're casting it from the page. And vice versa, if it is a bonus action cast, it would take your action. Because it would require your action and your bonus action together to cast this spell that you don't have prepared. That is a good bit of wiggle room from the DM. Another thing, if you're rolling a wizard, wizards, something they do sell are the spell cards, which have all the spells lists. And that is a good way to kind of go out and prepare your spells because now you have your awesome little cards you can kind of set out and they look really cool and they're great to have and they have one for each of the schools. And so that's a good way you can lay out the spells you've prepared for the day. Say, I've got these ready. And that's a good way to be on top of your game as well. Yeah, I've got a copy of the Arcane spell cards and a copy of the Druid spell cards. I got the Arcane ones for me as a DM because I almost always end up having at least one creature in my combats on my side with spells i got tired of making myself a crypt sheet of what all these spells did and the ranges and casting time and the spell level and all of that nonsense and so now before the game starts i can just pull out the deck pull out the few cards that i need and then i have them there as a quick reference for me as a dm actually i have the druid spells i have a couple other decks as well some npcs some treasure things for dms that are great But I had a newer druid player. She was 15 or 16. She was playing with her family. And she wasn't fully used to her spells. Again, as a DM, I'd have her pick her spells out. And then I handed her her cards and just made sure I got them back at the end of the session. So that way, when she needed to reference a spell, what it did, what its range was, things like that, she had it right there. So that's a good thing, too, to kind of introduce a new player into the table. Because that's a lot to juggle, especially when you're new, if you're nervous. And any kind of prompt or prop or help like that can really help incorporate new players into the game. And of course, you don't have to go out and buy these. We went ahead and bought them for the convenience of it, but you can simply just take a stack of index cards and just go ahead and write them out yourself. Exactly, and that's a great low-cost way to do things. When it comes to preparing your spells as a wizard, you get to choose a number of spells equal to your intelligence modifier plus your wizard level. So however many levels you have in Wizard, plus your Intelligence modifier, minimum of one, that's how many spells you get to prepare every day. So if you are a 20th level Wizard with a 20 Intelligence score, you get to prepare 25 spells a day. That's just a lot of spells. And this is different than Advanced 2nd Edition or 3rd Edition. 
I kind of like it. It is a bit of a change. It does take some getting used to. At least now you don't have to refer to a table to know how many spells you get a day. Because you used to do that in 3rd edition. 3. As a 5. wizard, maybe I like tables a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but I like not having to refer to a table and say, okay, here's my intelligence. Do I get bonus spells? Do I get... This is definitely a standard of living type edition. This is a simplification that really works. It really does work, and this is me wearing an onion on my belt saying I like my old tables, but that's just me being a crotchety <laughs> old man. And you get to prepare a new batch of spells every time you finish a long rest. That's when you can change your loadout. So you've gone, you've slept, you hit your save point, you see a little spinny icon down in the bottom corner. But just remember, just because you prepared a spell does not mean you necessarily get to cast the spell. You can only cast so many spells a day. You have so many spell slots. Right, and it's an important thing to note that when you cast a spell, you don't unprepare it. So if you have, let's say you prepare Fireball. It's a third level spell, and you have, just for argument's sake, you have a sixth level spell slot, two fifths, two fourths, three thirds. You can cast that Fireball using all of those spell slots. So that's five plus three. You can cast fireball eight times. That's too much fireball. That is probably too much fireball. Put the bottle down, take a step back. You've had too much fireball. But you can cast three third levels, two fourth levels, two fifth levels, and a sixth level fireball using all of those spell slots if you want to. And again, that's the difference when you looked at second edition or third edition. You'd actually have to prepare the spell to the slot. So if you wanted to, you'd have to prepare a fireball eight times where you prepare a third level fireball and a fifth level fireball and maybe melt sassed arrow and darkness and whatever else you would want to throw in there. So I like that simplification that they've managed to pull out here. I'm getting used to it. It's not a bad thing. It just, it's a definite change. As someone who didn't play casters in third edition for this very reason, I like it. Go back to your cleric, cleric. Me and my horizons. <laughs> yes. Moving on. Spellcasting ability is going to be your intelligence. Your saves, 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus your intel mod. So it's like your other saves. It's just based off your intelligence. Not a huge surprise. Your spell attack modifier is your proficiency bonus plus your intelligence modifier. Nothing terribly surprising there. So you always have this single benchmark number. And if they roll that number or higher, they save. If they roll below that number, they fail. Ritual casting, I think this is a newer thing. I don't recall this in 3rd or 2nd edition. But you can cast a wizard spell as a ritual if the spell has ritual tag on it. And you have that spell in your spell book. You don't have to prepare it, which is nice. So basically, if you're not on your quote-quote downtime, but if you're resting or doing like your role-playing stuff, you're not in battle, and you can take the time to sit and do it. A ritual spell is 10 minutes plus the casting time. So if it's a one-action spell, it effectively becomes a 10-minute cast time. If it's a one-minute cast, it becomes an 11-minute cast time. So when you're capping outside the cave and you want to run that identify to see what kind of treasure you all found, using that as a ritual spell versus burning spell slots is a very nice thing to have. Doing that, casting detect magic on yourself. If you can do that before you go into the building or go into the dungeon, just take 10 minutes, cast detect magic on yourself as a ritual, and then you have 10 minutes to walk around with detect magic on without burning a spell slot to do it. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of these are ease of living modifications that really work. Again, a little bit different from older editions, but I'm not too upset with the change. 
So going back to the spell book, we did jump over this. The spell book is going to be your codex where you're keeping all of your spells. Uh, you're going to refer back to your spell book whenever you are preparing your spells so that you know what you're going to be preparing for the day. There doesn't actually happen to be anything codified that I can find on how many spells you can actually fit into a spell book. I have not found anything official, which is a little odd, but however you want to roll that, that's fine. But your spell book is your bread and butter. Your spell book is your best friend. If you have to save a party member or a spell book... You're typically going to save your spell book. Party members, close your ears. You're saving your spell book. The party members can be replaced. That spell book's important. Unless you have taken the time and resources to make yourself a backup spell book. Which you can do. Which you, you should do. Yes, you don't tell anybody about this ever, and then you probably still save your spellbook of your party member because then they know you have an extra spellbook. Your spellbook, from an RP standpoint, that is the core of your being. This is Davy Jones' heart in a bottle type thing. You know, this is the sole focus of your character. Whenever you're making your spellbook for your wizard, it doesn't have to be your typical book. It doesn't have to be this big tome that you carry around with you. I have seen people play characters where they have a series of scrolls that they carry around that they inscribe their spells on. And so they're covered all over with all of these scroll cases. I played with a guy who actually was covered in tattoos and his tattoos were his spells. Whenever he got a new spell, he would ink it onto himself. That's a great idea. I like that as RP. That was really cool. My Warforged wizard, his spell book, it's like a leather three-ring binder almost, where each page is actually a sheet of metal that he has engraved his spells into. A whole lot of your character's personality can be displayed in your spell book and how you choose to portray it. It is something that doesn't have to be your bog-standard book. You can definitely get away with some interesting concepts if you want to if you were playing a more modern version your spellbook could easily be your cell phone or your device however you're going to store and save knowledge that's pretty much how it is this said you can find somebody else's spellbook you keep your spellbook next to you but you knock off that enemy wizard or you know you find where the archmage once lived and you go ransack his mansion you might find their spellbook and at that point once you take their spellbook i think i don't know if you have to some you have to attune to but then you have access to all of those wonderful spells that they once knew. So now you have two spell books to choose from. Well, you can't prepare spells from someone else's spell book. Can or, you not? No, you have to copy the spell into your spell book. Okay. I thought um, once you attuned to it, it became your no, spell book there, as well. There, there is no attuning to someone else's spell book. Then I was wrong with that, and I will recant those words. If you find a spell book, or if you find spell scrolls, Spell scrolls are also another great way of accumulating spells for your spellbook. If you find them, you have to copy them into your spellbook before you can prepare them. Because, and this is going back to the lore in 3rd edition, whenever you're copying a spell into your spellbook, you're putting in your own personal annotations to it, your personal notes to it, details on do it this way, not that way. You're personalizing the spell to you. And so you can't do that from someone else's spellbook because that is their notes 
and that is how they would prepare it. And you don't prepare spells the same way as every other wizard. Every gotcha. wizard has their quirks on how they prepare their spells. One last thing, spellcasting focus. As a wizard, you can use an arcane focus. You don't really run into this a whole lot because a lot of tables don't require material components for a lot of their spells. At my table, I only require material components if they have a specified value in the cast. So things like resurrection, where you have to have a diamond that's worth a certain amount of money, or hero's feast, where you have to have a gold chalice worth a thousand gold in order to cast the spell. Those I will require the material components for. But things like Fireball, where you have to have a pinch of... Is it Sulfur and Guano? I believe so, yeah. Whatever those little material components are, I don't require those. That can get really nitpicky, and that becomes a lot of accounting. Depending on how hardcore your party is, you may want to keep with that, you may not. If you're just trying to get people together on a weekend and have fun, that's nothing too much. You might want to tell your wizard every so often that they have to spend so much on materials, perhaps to kind of keep that balance, because those spells are supposed to come at a cost. It's not supposed to be free spells. And if you buy a component pouch, that is supposed to be your catch-all that contains all of your material components that cast whatever spell you have. But the thing about the arcane focus is, if you have an arcane focus, you get to ignore the trivial material components of spells. That's actually in the rules. Yes, and so that's a good thing to pick up as an adventurer, generally. And you can use something as simple as your wizard staff, your wizard staff can be your arcane focus. I put on my robe and wizard hat. And then whenever you're learning new spells, you get two new spells every wizard level for free. And everything else you have to find a spell and copy it into your book, which costs 50 gold and two hours, I believe it is, per spell level of the spell. Right. Okay, so I think that pretty well covers it. That is a fairly thorough overview. And that's all at level one, guys. Luckily, it tapers off real quick. So starting at second level, you get Arcane Recovery. Arcane Recovery is really handy because what... No, you get Arcane Recovery at first level. Oh, you do get Arcane Recovery at first level. I am sorry. So once per day, when you take a short rest, you can regain half of your wizard level worth of spell slots back. You can't get anything higher than a fifth level spell slot back using this, but it always... I think it rounds up. It actually specifies... This is one of the few times when it specifies that it rounds up instead of rounding down. So at first level, you get one spell level. So you get one first level spell slot back. Once you hit third level, you get two levels. So you can get two first level spell slots or a second level spell slot. And you can piece it together however you need to. But this is great because you're going to be slinging a lot of spells. And this is just a handy way to get back some of those spells that you cast. Exactly, and this way you're not just flinging only cantrips. Starting at second level, you get to choose your arcane tradition, which is the school of magic that you're going to be focusing in. There are like ten of them, so we're not going to go over all of them, because that's a lot. Really, we could spend an episode on each one, honestly. You've got your classical nine, and then you also, they've added in various arcane traditions versus, you know, your different source books or your UA. There's a lot of options here. We're going to brush on a handful that we looked at. We're going to go ahead and finish up the base class features because most of the abilities that the wizard gets come from their traditions. They don't get a whole lot from the base class as they level up. And I like that because it makes each individual school of magic 
feel like a completely different type of wizard. Exactly. And like we were talking at the beginning of this episode, this is as much as I had the issue with the fighters feeling very conveyor belt and off the line, the wizards, each and every one can have so many different flavors. Fourth level, you get your first ability score improvement. You get ASIs at the standard distribution of 4, 8, 12, 16, and 19. So the wizard only gets five ASIs, which is, it's odd because in third edition, in 3.5, you ended up getting at least two, if not three, bonus class feats. I know that the fighter got a bunch of extras, but the wizard actually got a few on their own. There was a lot of customization for your spells in third edition, particularly things like quick magic or meta magic. Yeah, meta magic or... feats were the big thing, and you had to buy each meta magic as a feat, and it was something that all casters had access to, rather than in fifth edition being a sorcerer class feature. Right, and so at that point, just for pure utility's sake, the wizards needed more access to feats. Those aren't so much an item in 5th edition. That need has been reduced. Then the next thing you get in the base class, you don't get until level 18. At 18th level, you get spell mastery, so you get to choose a 1st level wizard spell and a 2nd level wizard spell, and you can cast them as a 1st level or 2nd level spell, respectively, without consuming a spell slot. You're basically making a first level cantrip and a second level cantrip, which is really nice. These are spells that you have used day in and day out every single day. Just very simple things, you know, so things like detect magic or a shocking grasp maybe or any of a number of other little things. And it feels good that the wizard who has spent all of this time studying magic and honing their craft would be able to pick two of these lower-level spells and just cast them for free. Yeah, I've got no issue with that. It's the things you do off of muscle memory. You know, if you play hacky sack or you sit there and you've played that game enough that you can close your eyes and hit the keys in order, or you practice piano for so long you don't even need to read sheet music anymore, that kind of thing. Oh, I missed this before. You can spend eight hours in study to change what those spells are. That feels okay. I'm okay with that. By the time you hit this level, you are fairly well-founded in your skills. And then at 20th level, you get signature spells. You get to choose two third-level spells that are in your spellbook to always have prepared that don't count against your total number of spells prepared for the day. So again, this is very much like your spell mastery. Just a higher-level spell still feels fairly standard, feels okay. But it's not the same as Spell Mastery. Spell Mastery is basically turning these two spells into a cantrip. These are always prepared, and they don't count towards your total number of prepared spells. If you always want to have a pocket fireball, you can choose fireball as one of your signature spells. Signature spells. Okay. I had read that wrong. I thought it was one that didn't count against your spell slots as well. But no, I read that wrong. Oh, sorry. You were half right. You can cast each of them once per day without consuming a spell slot. I missed that part. So this is a slightly buffed up version of Spell Mastery. Again, I'm not like woohoo about this, but it's not terrible. Makes sense. I mean, as far as Keystone abilities go, it's not the greatest. The Rogues was far beefier as written. We ended up nerfing it, if I remember right. But it's not bad. It's not the Bards. The Bards is kind of terrible. 
Okay, so let's go ahead and dive in real quick into the schools that we're going to be discussing. We talked for a little while on what feels right for the auntie race to do as this class, and we came up with three suggestions that we both agreed were pretty good. All three of them were pretty good, and I feel like we probably have narrowed it down to one, but let's go ahead and talk about what we had. So the first one was the School of Enchantment. And again, you have your Yanti, you've got some of that shape-shifting, particularly with your pure blood. You've got that innate magic. A lot of your enchantment is going to be your ability to mesmerize someone, things like that. They're supposed to be that suave, almost like a seduction-type play. A lot of their stuff is based off charisma. So enchanting felt really good. When you think of like your fairies or your fae, they've got the beauty, they've got that way of words, they have a way to kind of captivate the mind and convince you to do something. So enchantment felt like it fit correctly with the And enchantment was the first one that I actually came to as well. The thing that I always have to remember is that enchantment has nothing to do with making magic items. Yes. It's kind of a false cognate. The whole school of enchantment is about affecting the mind of someone else, enchanting a person rather than enchanting an item. Right. From the text, if you will open up to your holy texts again. As a member of the School of Enchantment, you have owned your ability to magically entrance and beguile other people and monsters. Again, this feels very correct for a Yanti. So that was the first option that we came up with. The second one, which was one of James's, was the School of Illusion. So if you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about that. So School of Illusion, again, very similar to the School of Enchantment. It's much more of a mental magic. It's not, I'm throwing a bunch of fireballs and blowing stuff up. It's a lot more subtle. These two schools really sing to me as a player. These make my heart go pitter-patter. From the text, you focus your studies on magics that dazzle the senses and befuddle the mind. Tricks even the wisest of folks. So it's very much the sleight of hand, look over here, not there. Trying to go with the auntie, with that sly character, with the person that moves kind of behind the shadows, redirects people. This felt correct. We're not building a meat grinder on the field. We're building a more subtle character. And so this has that very soft velvet glove feel to things. Especially with the pure blood, one of their things is they infiltrate human society. And so it seems very appropriate that they would have a heavy basis in illusion magic because even the pure bloods have a few tiny little snake-like attributes to them. And so this school of illusion would allow them to tweak their appearance just that little bit to cover that up. And so the third one was one that I suggested, and I pulled it from the Unearthed Arcana, is the school of onomancy. And oh my god, I love this idea. I absolutely love, love this concept. I found an article that confirmed that Wizards of the Coast is not going to be pursuing this one for publication. It would have been in the batch of Unearthed Arcana archetypes that would have gone into Tasha's Cauldron, but apparently it didn't get a lot of traction from the fan base. So Onomancy and Psionics were both schools that got cut from this particular batch. It's totally okay, Wizards. We got you on this. We're not going to cover this in depth today. This one needs some attention. It's a beautiful, beautiful school. Yeah, I love it. It plays into finding the true names of your targets and then using their true name to gain power over them. Not in the sense that something like the Dresden Files would have you do, where if you utter someone's true name three times, you can summon them to you and bind them to your will. 
That's actually fairly close in some of the old D&D lore, though. Yeah, you could do that in some of the old D&D lore, but that is just entirely too overpowered for what 5th edition is built for. That would be yes, but that concept of knowing something's true name, giving you power. If you want to sing your old hymns, you know there's power in the name. You know, a lot of Christians in their prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, you know, they use the power of the name of something or a deity to empower or to strengthen a desire, a wish, a spell, whatever it may be. There's a lot of lore, real world lore tied into this. This was a wonderful idea. This definitely needs to be tinkered with a lot. We were discussing a little bit before recording the most prominent example of this is the story of Rumpelstiltskin. Exactly. You know, you had to know his real name to break the power of his magic. The Romani, they used to have the tradition of giving a child a name that was their quote, quote, real name or their hidden name. And then they would call them by something else for most of their lives. And generally, the only person that would know your real name would be your parents, your spouse, and your priest. And that was it. You know, maybe like a blood brother or someone who you're extremely, extremely close with. Not your wife, but your partner. So your parents, your partner, or like your priest or something like that. You also see some of this with Catholic confirmation. So when you do your Catholic confirmation, depending on your personal Catholic tradition, but I know a lot of Catholics will pick up another name, and this was supposed to draw protection from any given saint, perhaps. Like if you picked Michael, then you'd obviously extra protection or help from St. Michael or whatever saint or angel you chose. And by adding their name to yours, this would help mention for help and benefit throughout your life. So that's kind of a thing. So even today, you still see some of this power in name or knowing the truth of a thing. Another example of this is, uh, I don't know about other royal families, but the British royal family it is very traditional to assume a monarchical name. Queen Elizabeth II was pretty notable in that she decided not to choose a different name. She was like, Elizabeth is good enough for me. Elizabeth is good enough for me to be queen. But a large number of the monarchs of the British houses would choose a new name to rule under. Their name as king or queen would not be the same as their given Christian name. Going back to one of my characters I played with Ian, my halfling, my warlock, part of the deal is when he got his power, because he was actually chosen initially as a sacrifice, and he was able to convince the entity to give him power instead of consuming him. But he lost his name as part of that deal, and that's one of the reasons why he goes about collecting names. So we had Newt, Magnus, Shadowcaster, Ripper, Wings of Cure, of Boots. I actually found it written down the other day and found out we've been leaving a name element out it's actually newt greedo magnus shadowcaster that's right because he did shoot first that one he, time he did shoot first so he is newt greedo magnus shadowcaster but again i love this lore i like how this works this rolls right into how i would play a character that said as the ua is written it has some really bad flaws that unfortunately affects its usefulness it was Go very ahead. poorly written and i think that's part of the reason why it didn't get much traction is because it was just not very well written but there are some aspects in here that were really good like at second level once you learn something's true name you could cast bane or bless without using a spell level and it would stick on the person for an extended amount of time which i really like you had some resonance with your utterance at sixth level which basically made your spells a little stronger if you were able to learn a creature's true name You could add a resonance to your spell, which would add some extra spell effects, which again, I think was a really good idea. I really like those two features of this tradition. And as one of your second level features, 
you actually got to take a bonus action to try and discern the true name of a creature. So you wouldn't have to rely on all of this background research before you got up to it. If you ran into some big guy that wanted to eat your face, you could, as a bonus action, try to figure out his true name so that you could gain that extra influence over him. A big problem with the school was as written... If it's saved against a saving throw, then you could never try that spell on that creature again, which was yeah, really that weird. Was, yeah, if you fail to discern their true name, you never got a second chance. Right. And the other thing they were saying that many creatures don't have a true name. so Which I can get because a true name lends itself to a certain amount of sentience. So if you're not a sentient creature and you're not a notably powerful creature then it makes sense to not really have a true name. But they're basically saying that even some sentient creatures just, their culture, no, we don't have true names in our culture, so it doesn't count. So the chance is that it could be once if it hit, and then there would be a huge chance that you used just bonus action on something that had no true name. That part felt kind of broken. That was something that definitely needed some work. Your higher level skills on this needed some work as well. So we wound up deciding not to use Onomancy. We are definitely going to revisit that all. Yeah, absolutely. We are definitely going to do an episode later on where we revisit Onomancy and try and fix it. So this drew us back and this left us with our first two that we picked, which come from the traditional schools, either Enchantment or Illusion. Illusion's got a lot of really good stuff in there. It packs a little less punch than Enchantment, in my opinion. I don't know, because there are... There There are some really nice things in there. I like the fact that at second level... When you cast Minor Illusion, you can get an image and a sound at the same time. That is really handy, especially at low levels. But the thing that sold this for me, because again, we're talking about what feels right with the character we're developing. We're developing a Yonti character. And I love me some Kipling. I love me some Jungle Book. I love some Ricky Ticky Taffy. And Hypnotic Gaze at second level. Second level, when you choose the school, your soft words and enchanting gauge can magically enthrall another creature. So basically you get that hypnotic stare. That's very, the snake would stare and hypnotize their prey. It's a very traditional ability that snakes have. This fits perfectly. So I believe we had agreed that we are going to stick with the School of Enchantment. Is that correct? That is correct. We are going with the School of Enchantment. So you've got Ka from the Jungle Book with his hypno eyes, or in the uh, live action they had actually, uh, was that Scarlett Johansson with the voice? I didn't watch the live action one, so... So again, you've got that hypnotic voice, that sing-song voice, that gaze that kind of locks you and transfixes you. This feels perfect for Yanti, particularly for a pureblood. She's going to be a charmer. She's going to be that kind of smooth, kind of behind the shadows, almost like Jafar in Aladdin. Early on would be a good example of that enchantment wizard. He doesn't right. throw a lot of spells till the end, but he has that way, kind of schmuses around people, kind of redirects them, has an ability to control what they think before they realize that he's doing what he's doing. Again, this is very much a kind of character that I enjoy playing. All right, so starting off with the School of Enchantment, you get it at second level. When you take this at second level, you get Enchantment Savant, which has the gold and time requirements for copying an enchantment spell into your spellbook. James likes this a whole lot more than I do. I think that this is too minor of a feature personally in the long run i don't think it really affects how you play your character not so much in the long run but early game particularly when you don't have a lot of gold 
And this is a, hey, you joined our school, here's the secret pin you get and all that stuff. But when it comes down to, you know, second level, third level, when you're having to pick which spells you actually have in your spell book and you haven't looted all that treasure yet, you're going to spend that gold generally where you could get more spells versus something specific. I am okay with this. Ian had some good ideas to maybe replace or do something else with them or just to toss this out completely. I don't know. I kind of see this being effective early on your first two or three levels. And after that, yeah, you should be looting more than this matters. The primary complaint that I have about this is that, yeah, it does affect copying spells into your spell book at the earlier levels because that's when you're going to be lighter on coin. But you're going to be gaining those first few levels pretty quickly. And you get two spells for free every time you gain a wizard level. So two spells completely for free. You don't have to pay any gold to get them. You don't have to spend any time copying them into your book. They're 100% free. So free fireball, and then you use your half-price enchantment spells. But the thing that I was going to suggest, and unfortunately it does add a little bit of a bookkeeping issue to it, but give you a plus one bonus on attack rolls and saving through DCs for enchantment spells. So you get a plus one bonus on all of the spells for your school. And this feels thematically correct for the character. If your character is studying a particular set of spells, then they are going to know how to use them better. So I really am okay with this. If you want to toss out the gold cost, because a lot of people don't even really account. I would actually just tack it on. Yeah. Oh, if you want to tack it on, that, that'd I be fine. I'm okay with leaving it because this half price for copying spells of the enchantment school really is such a minor little thing that it doesn't bother me in the least to leave it. Then yeah, let's go ahead and tack that on. Because like I said, this does feel good for your lower level characters. And I do think it will tend to affect how your characters choose their spells they have in their spell book, particularly early on. So moving along to the next one, Hypnotic Gaze. James touched on this. As an action, you can choose one creature within five feet of you and force that creature to make a wisdom saving throw against your spell save DC or be charmed by you until the end of your next turn. The charmed creature's speed drops to zero and is incapacitated and visibly dazed. So on subsequent turns, you can use your action to maintain the effect, extending its duration until the end of your next turn. However, the effect ends if you move more than five feet away from the creature, if the creature can neither see nor hear you, or if the creature takes damage. Once the effect ends, or if the creature succeeds on its initial saving throw, you can't use this feature on that creature again until you finish a long rest. This is a wonderful ability for if a room that you need to get into has one guard and the wizard just walks up to the guard and starts a conversation and uses this ability and just stands there and talks to them and maintains that ability until the rest of the party is done getting whatever it is in that room and disappearing. And then you drop it off and you walk away. This is also a good way to do crowd control in combat. So if you've got a handful of small things running about and you've got a big nasty there, you can try to use this hypnotic gaze to kind of lock one character. And if it's incapacitated one, it's going to be taking disadvantage on save throws. And I believe people attacking it get advantage. So they could pummel it real fast, or you can kind of stun it and keep it in place while they squish the small stuff. And then they can all kind of focus on the big thing. The two downsides to that is one, you have to get within five feet of it. And two, if it takes any damage, the effect ends. 
Right. So this is one of those things you communicate to your party, but you see the fighter because we all know the fighters have their really crappy will saves anyway. And you say, hey, I've got this one. If it moves, hit it. But if it doesn't move, leave it alone. (laughs) That kind of thing. This does take a little bit of party coordination, but it can be very useful in combat as well. It's a good panic button. It is a great panic button. Or if you're in there with your rogue friend and you charm the shopkeeper and then you can just, you know, empty the shop. Continuing on, at 6th level you get Instinctive Charm. When a creature you can see within 30 feet of you makes an attack roll against you, you can use your reaction to divert the attack, provided that another creature is within the attack's range. The attacker makes a Wisdom Saving Throw against your Spell Save DC, and on a failed save, they have to attack the creature that is closest to it, not including you or itself. And if there are multiple creatures available, the attacker gets to choose which one it hits. I like this. This is kind of a good spell. One of the details that I like about it is on a successful save, you can't use this feature on the attacker again until you finish a long rest. So this means that you can use this as many times as you want until the creature that you're using it on saves against it. So if they fail five times in a row, then you could use it a sixth time. But if they succeed on it, you still get to do that on every one of his buddies at least once. And that is something that in the School of Enchantment is you can use those spells on something as many times as you need until they realize that you've tried to enchant them. And then at that point, it generally doesn't work. And at that point, they generally are a little angry with you. At the very least, they're bitter because they know you've been messing with their head. It never goes well whenever someone figures out that you've been fiddling with their gray matter. Continuing on, 10th level, you get Split Enchantment which is really nice. When you cast an enchantment spell of first level or higher that targets only one creature, you may have it target a second creature. That comes in super handy. Yeah, this gives you a handful of utility. I like this. And then starting at 14th level, you get Alter Memories. When you cast an enchantment spell to charm one or more creatures, you can alter one creature's understanding so that it remains unaware of being charmed. Additionally, once before the spell expires... You can use your action to try and make the chosen creature forget some of the time it spent charmed. The creature must succeed on an intelligence saving throw against your wizard's spell save DC, or lose a number of hours of its memories equal to 1 plus your charisma modifier minimum 1. You can make the creature forget less time, and the amount of time can't exceed the duration of your enchantment spell. I really don't know how I feel about this one. It's got some usability. I can see where this could be fun. I could see where I would use this on the table. As your 14th, this is the cap of your school spell. A little underwhelming. It has its niche. Its niche is in a social-heavy campaign. Very much so, yes. In a campaign where you're going to be influencing a lot of people, where you're going to have a lot of social interaction, where you're going to not necessarily have a bunch of combat encounters. A diplomacy-heavy campaign would really benefit from this. But if you're going to be doing a dungeon crawl murder hobo game this this ability just doesn't have the muscle behind it like some of the other ones i do like the fact that the person doesn't understand they were charmed afterwards that's probably my favorite part of this and i like the whole they forget a certain amount because if you can charm a person into helping you with something like suggestion and then there's no witnesses and they don't know what happened yeah they help you do whatever it is that you're wanting done And then you just wipe their memory afterward. They forget that they saw anybody with you. And they forget why their fingerprints are all over everything. Yeah. That does bring a bit of light into it. 
as you said, this would definitely be for a much more social game, a lot more RP than combat oriented. Not the worst capstone feature we've seen, not the best. I'm of mixed feelings. I give this something slightly better than a mats. Uh, this will make me think how to use this. And anything that makes me think about how I'm going to play my character, I have to be okay with. Because I like thinking in my character's shoes, and that's what makes the game. I like that the attribute that determines how much of their time you can erase is charisma as opposed to exactly. intelligence. And again, that lines up perfect with our Yanti versus me personally. If I was rolling a wizard, I would use that charisma score as a dump. With our Yanti, that's not going to be the case. So I'm really okay with this. I like it. I think largely with the exception of Enchantment Savant, which is that one second level ability, we aren't actually altering this much at all. No, not so much. And again, the wizards are so well written. I mean, if you're going to take a company calling themselves Wizards of the Coast and they kind of half-assed the wizard, that would be a bit more than ironic. So the wizards really are well fleshed out. They are fairly well balanced. Yeah, I'm impressed with the published wizarding schools. There are aspects of onomancy that I really would like to throw into some of these schools, particularly something to make a spell stick a little better or hit a little harder. As it is, I'm really comfortable with how these are written. And as it is, we can always come back and make an onomancy wizard feat that would let us pull some of like the resonance, let a wizard pick up a couple of the resonance. I definitely want to work with that onomancy tradition, either a full tradition in school or just we'll probably have a dozen or so episodes later on just talking about feats because there are all kinds. Feats tend to be a little forgotten in this edition, I think. Well, they wanted the feats to play a lesser role because they were so prominent, especially in third edition. Oh, yeah. Feats were everything in third edition. And feats were one of those things where there were dead feats. There were feats that it was a complete waste of a feat to buy it. But I think that brings us to the end of our wizard for today. In our next episode, we're going to be building up our magic items for this character, which I'm real excited about. I've already come up with some stuff and I've queued you in on what I'm doing. So, Right, yeah, this is going to be really fun. And then we'll actually have three of our four set pieces set. So we are making some progress on this. And again, we are planning on having these roll out. We're going to test them at 3rd, 10th, and 20th level. So we are going to have some playtime with these characters as well. 3rd, 11th. 3rd, uh, 11th, yes, and 20th. We are going to plan to publish everything. So we do plan to publish our few changes we have. We will publish... We are in our launch, so these are our first eight weeks. This is our launch period. So again, if you like, subscribe to our podcast. That's great. We are now pretty much on most of the major podcast features. You can find us on Amazon. You can find us on Apple iTunes Store. We're on Amazon Podcasts. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. And we're hosted on Podbean. And so if you enjoy us, tell your friends again, like us, subscribe to us. We're all very much word of mouth right now. So we are hoping to build a following with you all. Message us. Let us know what you think about this character, what you think. If you've read up on the Onomancy UA, share your thoughts on that. We would love to interact with you. Hopefully after we get our playtest out, we are hoping to have a lot more subscriber and user interaction. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please feel free to send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can also find us on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew and on Instagram and Facebook under Undercommon Taste. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com 
or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Crowell. Again, thank you for joining us, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.